Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. One of the most exciting books in the entire Bible. It's often been called the Revelation of the Old Testament. It is absolutely essential. Uh, as Dr. Harry Ironsides and Martin Lloyd-Jones and Charles Spurgeon and many other Bible expositors and a very long list of uh, scholars have said that without the book of Daniel, it would be almost impossible to interpret the book of Revelation. It is an exciting book. And it's an interesting book. There's a lot going on in it. Tonight we're going to do an introduction to it. That introduction will cover the first seven verses. And I'm going to share with you a bunch of introductory things because it's extremely important to understand this in the context of the times and how it applies to today and and to see the parallels that exist in our world today and in Daniel's time some 2,600 years ago. And so as these words were written and as they were penned, so important is this book that Jesus himself quotes directly from it in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, he directly calls him a prophet. Uh, that's, in my view, about as high an accolade as you can get from Jesus. Amen? So if Jesus calls Daniel a prophet, I'm okay with Daniel being a prophet. Uh, in the book of Daniel, we find some of the most precise and exacting prophecies found anywhere in the Bible, much less uh, in the Old Testament, uh, including uh, the day uh, of the coming of the actual Messiah himself when we get to chapter 9. So uh, there are a lot of things in it that are just fascinating. They're so fascinating, in fact, that liberal and modern theologians have often and frequently debated whether Daniel actually wrote this book, and more specifically, whether Daniel could have possibly have written it uh, in the time frame that it was authored. And so as we look at that, uh, Daniel was writing in, in roughly 536 B.C., and it's most often given by liberal theologians this book was probably written around 170 B.C. The problem with that is that the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament includes the book of Daniel, and that book was written nearly 300 B.C. So we know that modern scholars are just simply wrong. We also know from looking at the book itself that its own internal evidence gives us some of the massive details of the historical setting that's given uh, in the book of detail in such great color and, and broad scope that we can't, ignore the fact that it's unbelievably accurate. And so it appears from everything that we can possibly look at that this book not only was authored by the prophet Daniel, but the events described in it uh, were themselves largely prophetic. The first chapter is the only chapter in the book that is that is not prophetic in nature. And it's not prophetic in nature to give the historicity of the book itself. And so Uh, As we look at it, we want to, as Jesus called Daniel the prophet, uh, you remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist, also viewed to be a prophet there in Matthew chapter 11. He said there in the 7th through the ninth verse, What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. Uh, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, speaking of John the Baptist, more than a prophet. If that was true of John the Baptist, it's really true of the prophet Daniel. Uh, This is one of those books that you look at and you go, are you kidding me? He said that about that group of people, and he did it uh, well in advance of the historical uh, documentation that that actually occurred. And so this is one of those books that as we read it, we're going to have our minds blown a little bit. I will also draw your attention as we look at the introduction to this book that the world that Daniel is in is very similar to the world that we're in today. There was a single powerful government that existed in all of the world, and it was Babylon. Today that happens to be the United States of America. 
Like it or not, there is no other nation uh, that has the power, has the global reach, has the ability to do the things that we can do. And so to some degree, you, you can almost draw your parallel lines beginning with us. And that world that Daniel was in was a very carnal world, a very fleshly world, a very appealing world, a very attractive world. I would also remind you that at the time of the writing of this book, Daniel was likely between 14 and 17 years of age. He was a teenager, which makes the introduction to this story all the more powerful because this is not some aged saint that's walked with the Lord for all of his life. This is a young man who's resigned in his heart that he is going to do what God has told him to do, irregardless of what the government says and irregardless of the cost. And so there's a beautiful picture that we have for us, especially as we minister to our young people, to to dare them to be as Daniel was. The world needs Daniels. The, The world needs for young people to stand up and say, I stand for the Lord. And so I will often here in this first chapter, I'll be drawing your attention to that. And Daniel stands when everyone else bends. The historical setting is, is one that when we look at it, it was well predicted. The Jewish people for 490 years had not kept the sabbatical year of the Lord. They had believed that if they just keep working, they were supposed to take seven years and from the sixth end of the sixth to the end of the seventh year, they were to allow the land to lay fallow. They were to not till it. They were to give it a break, which, by the way, in an agrarian economy uh, was a very important thing they should have done. Uh, it would have produced greater crops in the rest of the years. They would have, as the Lord certainly knew as he gave them that command, they would have benefited actually from it. But they had not done that. And because they had not done that, there were these 49 sevens that had not been kept. And, and so we, we look at this, this period of time and it becomes very, very clear that God is actually going to use this uh, government that is absolutely not for God's people as God's divine hand of judgment upon the Jewish people. And they are going to go into captivity for 70 years. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied of this. We'll look at that scripture in just a few moments. And he says to them, you don't like my commands? Then you can have it your way. I'll give you exactly what you've asked for. You want to struggle and stress and strain? And I say to you, again, a tremendous parallel in our nation. For the first 200 and roughly, say, 10 years, our nation was a nation that was principally understood to be a Christian nation. Doesn't mean everybody was a Christian. Doesn't mean that the government was necessarily completely Christian. But if you looked at our nation, if you asked anybody in the world, what is the religion of the people of America, they would have told you they are Christians. Without question. And God's given us blessings. And so we can kind of see the parallel between ourselves and what the Jewish people did. And as they turned their backs, the Jews did, upon the Lord, The Lord said, if you want to do it your way, I'll let you reap what you have sown. That immutable law found there in the book of Galatians. Whatsoever a man sows, that he shall also reap. And so the Jewish people, much like we are today, reaping what we have sown. We've sown to the whirlwind. We've sown to the flesh. They had sown to the flesh. They said, God, we don't believe you. We don't think that you're right. We're going to do it our way. And we're going to make laws and rules and regulations to make it okay. And as they did that, they went into 70 years of captivity. And I'm not predicting that next week we're going into 70 years of captivity to the Chinese. But what I am saying is, you can only turn your back on God so long when you've received his blessings before he turns his back on you. And we should not be surprised that we're going through the things that we're going through. So much of what we read in the newspaper and see on television should not surprise the person who's read the book of Daniel. And so tonight, we're going to begin our journey. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, and I'm reading from the New Living, 
don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. But let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That's God's desire. That's what Daniel did in the face of great adversity. And I pray that we enjoy this time, because we should. There's much that we can look at and go, man, God won. We want God to win. We need to be obedient to what he says. Otherwise, he'll let us reap what we sow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, and we pray as we turn our attention to your word, which says of itself that it's all that we need for life and godliness. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd speak these truths into our lives. We pray that our example to the world that we would be as Daniel was and his friends were, steadfast, immovable, as 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, abounding, Lord, in that labor, knowing that, God, that labor is not in vain in you. If we stand, help us to stand, Lord. Bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We need people specifically young people like these young people, like we have not ever needed, I believe, ever before. We've always had a need for that godly representation in government and in our communities and in society, and we have been blessed to live in a country that largely has provided that. Most of our laws are founded on biblical principles. A vast majority of our legal system is based principally on the mosaic system of laws. When you look at our country, you can see without a doubt the framer's intent. And so what we need now is a generation of young people to rise up and to take the country back. That's what we need. We need young people to stand up. And I encourage you to encourage them. I have the privilege of being able to do that, really, for my day job, if you will. But I want to encourage you to do that. You need to encourage young people to stand up and not cave in. Verse 1 in Daniel chapter 1. For in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king came, Jehoiakim, got to get these right because Jehoiakim is another word and it's another king. King of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. Now notice what it says there. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand. That doesn't sound like something God would do, amen? Pagan country, nasty nation, very, very, very brutal in their takeover of other places of the earth. It doesn't sound like God would ever do something like that. It should cause you to take a a, a moment's notice here, look at it, and go, wow, you mean God used heathens to spank his kids? Yes, God used heathens to spank his kids. God used an ungodly government to do his bidding. God is sovereign in all of the universe, and he raises up kingdoms and he tears them down. And he does what he wants to do. He's not thwarted, nor is he blind to what's going on in the world. And so here he begins to use uh, the Babylonian Empire. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he had carried into the land of Shinar, into the house of God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. And so you can see the, the tables have turned. And I will remind you that as you read the second book of Kings, specifically when you get to chapters 23, 24, 25, 26, you're going to see these kings that are mentioned in the book of Daniel. And you're going to see something that is very, very off-putting to anyone who loves the Lord. They continually disobeyed God. The kings themselves would not do what God asked. The kings themselves led the people in not following God. And again, tremendous parallel. 
When godly rulers reign, the people rejoice, your Bible says. But to every despot that there is, to every godless one, the people also suffer. And as the people follow that leadership, and they follow that leadership the wrong way, and they will not stand, they will suffer for having not stood. And that's the the time that this was written. And the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge, quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace, whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And so, just as the flesh always does, he says, select them by what you see on the outside and how well they can flap their gums. And if they look like they're really good orators, see what they know, but we want to be able to indoctrinate them. We want them young. We want to make sure we get them before they've really established their own way of thinking, before Jehovah God has had a chance to really move in their life. Family of God, Satan's tactic has always been to go after the young people. Because if he can take the young people, he eventually takes the country. And he does that by taking two or three generations to get it done. I draw your attention to our country. If you look at what's happened beginning in 1962 when we banished prayer from public school, and the things that came after it like Roe versus Wade, and the things that came after it like no-fault divorce, and the things that came after it with the legalization of pornography, and the things that came after it like the sexual revolution, and the things that came after it like a divorce rate that is now higher than the marriage rate in the United States. When you look at what happened, it happened with a generation that was teenagers in the 60s. And in one generation, that generation affected another and another, and now we have three generations of people alive today that are believing the lie, because no one stood. This was what Daniel was faced with. He had generations of people who had lived under kings who would not follow the Lord. And as they did not follow the Lord, their nation suffered for it. And so he goes on. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he himself drank. And three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. So he's got a plan. He said, I'm going to get them hooked on MTV. And then I'm going to show them some porn mags. And then I'm going to get them doing whatever they shouldn't be doing. And I'm going to make them feel like they're important. So I'm going to turn them into occupiers. All right, so I'm taking artistic license, okay? But the point is this. He says, I'm going to show them all these things that are really fun in the flesh. I'm going to give them the very best food the very best wine. I'm going to treat them like they're special. I'm going to send them off to a secular university. And we're going to teach them how to be good Chaldeans. And now among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And to them the chiefs of the eunuch gave the names. He gave Daniel the name of Belshazzar, and to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, to Azariah, Abednego. And so he gives them names, and, and he attempts to change them by changing how they think of themselves even when they speak of their own name. And I want to draw some attention to some things that you're going to see throughout. You're going to see the kingdoms and essence of the world described in the book of Daniel that existed then all the way through to what exists today. You're going to see the kingdom of Babylon and Media Persia and Greece and Rome. You're going to see the Antichrist kingdom. You're even going to see the very last days, Daniel's 70th week. 
You're, you're going to see the kingdoms of the world unfold before you. And in doing so, what is set here in the first chapter is the opportunity for us to take a look really from outside of the world system and say, what was God trying to say? These final kingdoms that, that will exist, the, the last kingdom, which will be a revived Roman kingdom, which we'll get to as we proceed through this book. If you think about your history for a moment, you'll, you'll remember that the Roman world extended all the way to modern-day Scotland. It was all of modern Europe. It, it wasn't just Italy. It wasn't just the surrounding area. It was almost half of the known world. If you go to Great Britain today, you can still walk on top of Hadrian's Wall. That was the extent of the Roman Empire. And it's interesting what's going on in the world today, because as we look at the, the fall of Europe, it is crumbling right before our very eyes. And so many of us that have been students of prophecy for a long time, we've looked at them and gone, Lord, how are you going to work this out? You know, we thought for sure the, the ten nations that would rise up, and we're going, yeah, the EU has nine. The EU's got ten. Darn it, the EU's got eleven. Oh, it's got twelve. It's got fifteen. It's got seventeen. That's too many. What's happening right now? They're talking about removing many of those nations from the EU and dropping the euro as its currency. I don't know if God's going to bring that to fruition next week, next month, or next year. But I can tell you this, they aren't going to stay down. They're going to rise up again. Everybody in France is not just going to go away. Everybody in Germany is not just going to go away. There will be a revived Roman Empire. This book sets the stage for us understanding that that empire will come again. I also draw your attention to the fact the Roman Empire actually never ceased to exist. It's never been completely done away with. It's had less and less power, but it has always existed since its founding. It still exists in its entirety, if you will, uh, in Rome itself and in Italy. And so the Roman Empire will rise up and become the United States, in essence, of Europe. The background to this chapter, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel falls to the Assyrians. And, and you need to understand in a biblical time frame what's going on here. You have Jeremiah the prophet who's actually in Jerusalem at this time prophesying. You, you have Daniel in Babylon. You have Ezekiel in Babylon. They're all prophesying at the same time. They're telling the Jewish people, here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to go on. Don't miss what's God, what God's saying here, because we all have a message for you, and God is speaking to you. God has always had his voice in the world. He has never stopped speaking to mankind. And he continues to speak. And one of the beautiful things about the prophetic word of God is as you look at it, you're going, how did he know that? How did that come to pass? And duh, he's God. And as God speaks, he gives it to men who, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, write it down in its entirety and correctly, and behold, there it is in front of you. So in 616, uh, Napalasser, the king of Babylon, invades Assyria. With the help of the Medes, he besieges Nineveh in 612. In 610, Haran, which if you remember, that's one of the stops of Abraham on his journey, uh, falls to the Babylonians. In 609 B.C., Pharaoh Necho, whom you can look at Second Kings, chapters 23 to 25, you'll see these things, uh, marches on the north, and Josiah, who is then the king, uh, eventually is, is he's killed, attempting to block the way, and then a string of his sons begin to take over. And they all do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so here's where this gets interesting. You want to turn over uh, to the book of Jeremiah, to chap book, chapter 25. We'll pick up in verse 8. And so, remember, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. He is speaking this message to the Jewish people who have not yet been taken captivity, but are about to go into captivity. He's saying, guys, this is bad. 
It's real bad. Verse 8, And therefore the Lord Almighty says, Jeremiah prophesying, Because you have not listened to my words, God speaks that message into our world yet today, because you have not listened to my words. I've spoken. I've continued to speak the same message. We're getting into some, some difficult passages of Scripture in our study in 1 Corinthians. The world is not listening to God's message. The world wants to say, you know what? You're actually born gay. Not only does the scientific evidence not back that up, but it's not even true when you talk to homosexuals. You you see, the world wants its stuff its way. God says, and he lists a whole bunch of stuff, and we're going to get it on Sunday, that these things, if you continue in them, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. God has always spoken that way. God has hemmed in his people. He said, this is what I accept, and this is what I don't accept, and you cannot live out here. You can't live out here. You live out here, you're not my kids. Now, if you want to live out there by choice, I will let you do that because I want your love to be real. But you can't live out there and expect me to bless you. So Jeremiah continues, Because you've not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant, notice this, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You guys won't do what I say. I've given you 490 years to get it right. You don't want to listen. You keep doing things your way. I'm going to summon a heathen king with tremendous power, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against the surrounding nations, and I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. If you get opportunity to go to the Holy Land, you will notice something very specific, that outside of the revived Jewish part of Israel, the rest of the surrounding lands, as is evidenced in Syria right now, are pretty much still in ruins. They're some of the most destitute, poor people on earth. They are some of the most socially disadvantaged people on earth. They largely still lead nomadic lifestyles. They have nothing still to this day. God kept his word. And he says, I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin, and I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and the bridegroom, the sound of millstones, the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon. Notice this. He's going to get those sabbatic years back, 70 years. Jeremiah says to the Jewish people, God ain't messing. He's not joking. He's not playing around. We can either change and do exactly what he says, or here's what's going to happen. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation in the land of the Babylonians for their guilt, declares the Lord, and I will make it desolate forever. This is modern-day Iraq. Go to modern-day Iraq and look at modern-day Iraq, and it is to this day still desolate. Even the cities, though we get you know these pictures of some of the things that Saddam Hussein built during his reign, in Iraq. If you look at Iraq today, you will find a place that is still desolate. Virtually the whole country. Again, one of the poorest places on earth. And so God makes it clear what's going to happen. So in December of 604 BC, Jehoiakim cut to pieces Jeremiah's prophetic scroll. Jeremiah 36 says that. I don't like what you're saying. Can I tell you right now? that this is what the church is doing in America right now, just tearing pieces out of God's Word, saying we don't like what it says, we don't care what's in there, God's Word says it, we don't believe it, I'm tearing that part of the Word out. We're going to do it our way. The reason I'm establishing this 
is God never changes, ever. What he said 2,600 years ago still is true today. Otherwise, he's not God, and he's a liar, frankly. Fortunately for us, he's not a liar, and he is God. So what he said, he meant. The king says, I don't like what it says. Including what he tore up was Jeremiah's prophecy of the captivity in Babylon. Read chapter 36 of Jeremiah. You can tear up all the Bibles you want, but you're not tearing up God's word. You can shred it. You can grind it. You can burn it. You can toss it. You can throw it in the dumpster. You can do whatever you want. You're not messing with God. God is still God. But I'll tell you what you are doing. You're making God very upset. Because he doesn't take lightly to those who, in direct disobedience, say, we ain't doing it. Especially when those people are people who have been blessed of God. Can I say to you, God has a lot more grace, I believe, for open rebellion and people who don't know him than he does his own kids. You ever notice how when other kids come over to your house, you're more gracious than you are with your own kids? Because they don't know the house rules, right? And so those other kids come over, and you're like, oh, okay, all right, all right. So, you you know, your parents didn't raise you quite like I did mine, and I'm going to go with that. But your own kids do that? Woodshed. Death awaits. God is God our Father. So a young Nebuchadnezzar begins to dislodge the Egyptians, attack Syria. Uh, the king lays sick in Babylon, and so his young upstart begins to take over. And as the Egyptians are laid down, there now is exactly one empire in the entire world that really rules, and that's Babylon. They can do whatever they want. They have effectively conquered the known world at that time. And so God says, I'm going to use that heathen empire to teach my people a lesson. But I also want you to notice what he says at the end there of verse 7. Once I'm done using them, I'll take care of them too. God's will is not thwarted, family of God. And so verse 1 says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is the crisis point. This is the crisis point, and God always allows time for people to change their mind. God always allows for grace to intervene and forgiveness to intervene and repentance to intervene, but he does have a point at which he is saying, I will not go past here. Here's the good part. He has it. Here's the bad part. We don't know when it is. You don't get to pick and choose when God's had enough. And so the crisis point is, the Jewish people reached it. It was too late. It was already underway, and he's sending the king of Babylon to be, in essence, his hand. So Jehoiakim becomes the vassal king, if you will, of Nebuchadnezzar in the summer of 605. You see... During this time, as, as Babylon is, is taking over and bringing the Jewish people into captivity, which is what we see really in verse 2, the prophetic future had arrived. This is another problem with taking lightly the prophetic word of God. You see, we have a tendency to look at God's long-suffering and, and with his patience and with his lack of acting on things that are bad, like a nation that kills 1.5 million babies a year, like a nation who in direct disobedience to God's word is not only saying is homosexual activity okay, but we're going to make it normative. You, you see, when God has spoken, he may patiently wait for a long period of time while prophetically speaking hey, I don't dig this. This is not what I want, and you can't keep doing it forever. The problem with the longer God waits, unless your heart is softened towards the Lord, you begin to think God doesn't care. 
Or maybe God's not going to actually do it. And I would say to you that is where this book begins to unfold before us as a preview of the book of Revelation, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Zechariah. As you look at what God has said, he's basically saying, look, guys, I have an eternal plan. And that eternal plan, which is going to be laid out here in the book of Daniel, from the time of the Babylonians all the way to the very last kingdom that will exist when the church is raptured and the time of tribulation begins, he's saying, don't mistake what I'm saying here. I'm not saying I'm putting up with your garbage. I'm telling you I'm going to be long-suffering, but you don't know when the last day is that I'm done putting up with it. That should scare us to death at times. We should be going, Lord, help me be a light. Lord, help me to stand for you. Lord, don't let me get into that place to where I'm comfortable denying the plain teaching of what your word tells me. Don't let me believe because the rapture hasn't happened that it's never going to happen. Do you realize that there are people now that... that at one point in time, believed correctly that in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we could all be gone out of here as the body of Christ and in heaven. And there are people going, where is the promise of his coming? Exactly what scripture said we'd be saying. You guys have been saying that forever. You guys have been talking about that for 2,000 years. And God hasn't come back, and he's not coming back. Oh, I believe the grace thing. I believe the love thing, but I don't believe the wrath thing. That's a real dangerous place to be. Because the moment you think he can't, he will. Because he's faithful to his word. They arrived in captivity in 605 B.C., The book of 2 Kings chapter 20 says this in verse 16 and 17. Hear the word of the Lord. A time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. That was in chapter 20. That was some three years before it actually happened. You see, God is fair and God is just. And God would be unjust if he does not give fair warning. Amen? So God's prophetic word is fair warning to God's people. God's prophetic word is fair warning to God's people. He's saying, here's what I'm going to do. In this case, he told them when it was going to happen roughly. And he says to them how long that captivity is going to last. He says, don't play with it. Repent, turn. And that crisis point turns into a captive situation. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God. Isn't that sad? You see, the king shouldn't actually have had the articles of the house of God. The priest should have had the articles of the house of God. But it becomes such a mess that the government, the king, was telling the priest what to do. Can I say to you, that that's the direction this country's been going. The, the government's going to be telling those of us who teach God's word what we're going to teach and what we can't. And as I have been saying for years, it's coming down the pike. This presidential election, make no mistake about it, is a very important one. Because we are on the verge of having a Supreme Court that is completely ruled, already has two lesbians on it, by the way. completely ruled by people who don't believe in God. The next president's going to get to tip the scale, one way or another. Either back towards a constitutional understanding of what they're there for, and towards a worldview that is largely Christian, or away from it. And pretty soon, they'll be carried away into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. His God was a God that absolutely hated God. And I say to you, our country 
is fast becoming a God that hates the true and the living God. Don't want to hear it. I don't like what it says. Scary stuff. The three kings that succeeded Josiah all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 23, chapter 24, chapter 25 of the book of 2 Kings all tell that story. In all likelihood, I believe that Daniel, apparently because of his godliness, understood and heard the predictions of Isaiah and of Jeremiah. It was time to really find out what those methods of God's revealing himself to mankind, were they true or were they not? Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 2 says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for these 40 years to humble you, to test you, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. God has always allowed testing for us to see and for us to know whether we are really of him or not. That's when we figure those things out. It's one thing to make a verbal profession of faith. It is another thing when things get tough to keep giving that profession of faith and to stand for what God stands for and to do what God has asked. And all of the grand illusions that might have filled Daniel's heart uh, would have absolutely been knocked right out of him on that long trek to Babylon. As Daniel is saying, look, I've been following the Lord. As much as I know about him, I've been doing. And all of a sudden, I guarantee you, he would have had his doubts. But I want you to notice, even in the face of his doubts, the faith that God gave him was stronger than those doubts. He would pass a crucial test. And so verse 3 says, The king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of the eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel, Daniel and his three friends. He says, we're going to indoctrinate these guys. We're going to go after the youth of Judah. We're going to hit them where it hurts. We're going to get to them from the inside. We're going to corrupt the next generation. And we're going to make it so that they are seen as the rulers. And all these old codgers who love Jehovah God, they're going to die off one by one. And the next generation will be raised up and they're going to be Babylonians. And we've got that as Satan's tactic. He still keeps functioning exactly that way. You know, for me, I'm probably going to die praising God. I'm pretty certain that I'm going to keep praising Jesus until the day I take my last breath. But there are a lot of young folks that are in our world today. They're not quite so sure of their faith as I am. And I'm not asking for a special test. Because I know I have my fleshly weaknesses just like everybody else does. But I'm pretty set in the fact that I'm going to follow the Lord until he takes me home. And if it costs me my life, I'm willing to pay that price. But I don't think there are a whole lot of 14 to 17 year olds that think that way. I would think there are some. And I pray that there's many. And I know there are a few. But if you go after the youth of America and you tell them, you know, God's word isn't inerrant. That Bible they got, that's not infallible. Matter of fact, God didn't actually write it. It's just the words of a bunch of goofy old guys. They were culturally out of touch. It was written at a time that who could know the glories of modern medical science and how we've certainly proven that we came from Blue-green algae. <laughs> and that you are the product of chemical evolution. That pools of goo transformed into you. You see, you go after the kids. Because you know what? You attack creator God. You attack redemptive Jesus. If you don't believe that there's a God that's sovereign in all the universe, how can you possibly possibly believe that there is a God who loves you enough to die on a cross for you? I tell you, it's far easier to believe in a creator God 
than it is to believe in a God of grace. You see, so you attack the young people. You say, we'll turn them into Babylonians. Oh, we'll let them still think about Jehovah. We'll even let them talk about Jehovah. But the whole salvation thing, nah, not that. As long as you don't bring up Jesus. So the chief of Nebuchadnezzar's officials selects the best of the best of the best, if you will. And he gives them new names. And basically that change of names was the first step in the process of trying to gain dominion over them. And it's interesting that these four men's names, all in their original name, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, all have the name of God in their name. Daniel is God is my judge. Hananiah is beloved of God, beloved of Yahweh. Mishael is who is a God, as God rather. And Azariah is is God is my help or Yahweh is my help. And so their names all had, in essence, an honoring of God in them. And so they changed their names to Belshazzar, the God Bel favors. Bel was a half-cow god, and he was not a nice guy. Shadrach's name means illuminated by the sun god. Meshach means who is what the moon god is. And Abednego, the servant of Nebo or Murdoch, which was another deity of the Babylonians. And so sometimes if you can just shift people away from the truth of who they really are, and get them to think that they're really not that. I mean, after all, you know, the evidence is pretty, pretty overwhelming that you were once a blue-green algae. And that as you go to the zoo, you're just walking down memory lane as you go through the primate enclosure. Hi, Bob. Fred, how you doing over there? Mama's looking hot there with that hair on her chest. You just kind of shift them a little way away from where they actually are, and you tell them, ah, that's not really who you are. I mean, you're kind of a monkey. You see, it doesn't take much. You attack them when you're, they're young. Ah, you read them the story of two princes. And you tell them about how it's okay at seven years old if you really don't think you're a boy. You think you're a girl. I mean, after all, I mean, who really is to tell you? I mean, isn't that kind of old-fashioned? I mean, that's those Christian morals. You see the parallels? You go after the kids, and you tell the kids, hey, that's not who you really are. You're actually an ape. After all, you act like one. Your room looks like the jungle. And I mean, really, I mean, isn't it all about how we feel? Same exact tactic. And so they're given a test. They're given a test. And praise God, these men are going to pass that test. But I want you to notice the test. There's three component parts to it. And I want to tell you right here and right now that those three component parts are the same three component parts with which Satan tested Eve. With which 1 John chapter 2 says that all men are basically tested. They are the same three things that the Lord Jesus himself was tested in. In Luke chapter 4, Satan has not changed his tactics from day one with Adam and Eve to today. Look at them. They want you to partake of the choice food and drink. What did Jesus get? Command these stones to turn into bread. What did Eve get? That tree is good for food. What do we get? Oh, well, isn't that the best of the best? It's the lust of the flesh. Of course I want the best. The exiles? Well, we're going to give you power and prestige. 
I mean, after all, I mean, you're the best of the Jewish. We took the best Jewish young people, and you're going to make fine Babylonians. Jesus was said to him by Satan, I will show you the kingdoms of the world. All you have to do is bow down to me. In Genesis chapter 3, he was said, man, isn't that awesome? Don't you want some of that? That's better than what God gave you. And for us, Scripture declares there in verse John 2, it's the lust of the eyes. The third thing was to seek the king's approval and to be highly esteemed. Notice what happened in the life of Christ. Just cast yourself down from this cliff. Prove who you are. Just show them who you are. Told Eve, hey, you'll be just like God. And for you and I, it's that pride of life. Man, I'm the best of the best. So whether you look at this, these three things in G's, gratification, greed, and glorification of self, gratification of self, greed for self, and glorification of self, or you turn them into P's, passion, possessions, and position, that's all the enemy's doing, and he's still doing it. He's going after you with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He's going after these Jewish young men with the very same things. He went after Jesus, very same things. He went after Eve, very same things. Make no mistake, he's got no new tricks. He only has new ways to show those new tricks. That's all he's got. His playbook is pretty simple. If you look at it from a sporting standpoint, we're now in the basketball finals. My two favorite teams are in. I guarantee you, you look at the playbook of the Miami Heat, the OKC Thunder, you're going to see 500 plays each. Little subtleties, subtle nuances. Okay, LeBron, you need to take two steps on this one instead of three. Not so much with Satan. Just show him the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, and disguise it in some new way. And do the same three things. It's all he does with these young Jewish gentlemen. Considering the difficulty of this test, and notice what he says. He says, hey, man, we're going to give you the very best food. You're going to eat at LG's Prime Steakhouse in La Quinta every day. You can have that 46-ounce bone-in porterhouse on the sizzling plate with the haystack straws and the grilled onions followed with chocolate mousse, with chocolate mousse on it. Some of you have caved into the lust of the flesh already. It doesn't work. See? Still works, doesn't it? You don't even know what I was just saying. You, you, you see, that's all he's got. And so he says to these young men, he offers them a menu that violated God's law. Now, I'm not telling you that LG's violates God's law. It verges on gluttony at times, but he just says, Hey, man, this is all stuff offered to, you know, offered to idols, I know, but man, it's filet mignon. It's got grilled onions and mushrooms on top. Surely you want some of that. And they're going... Mm-hmm. What is everybody else eating? Tofu. I'm going, no. And the reason I draw your attention, if you love tofu, praise the Lord. If you like tofurkey dogs, it's okay. You see, these inexperienced young people might have been just tempted by the smells, just the the taste of it, just the look of it. Those of you that have had the opportunity to take your kids out to a nice restaurant, the first time they sit down, they're like, their eyes are like this big. It's like, really? A 46-ounce porterhouse? 
Yeah, it's half a cow on your plate right there. Do they have one bigger? Uh huh. It's still mooing though. You, you, you see, these kids would have, nobody would have known. You, you see, the penalty behind this would have been severe disobe- disobedience and punishment, but they were being obedient to the new king, right? The new king says it's okay. It's okay if you divorce your wife. It's okay if you divorce your husband. I mean, after all, it's legal. It's the law of the land. Haven't we been called to obey the laws of the land? You see how it works? It would have been real easy for him to cave in. I mean, hey, what are we going to do? I mean, we're being overwhelmed with kindness here. Disobedience. Even if they didn't get punished. Maybe that would work out to some horrible disadvantage in in respect to their future positions. Why I'm sharing this with you is there was a lot at stake by them taking a stand. They were probably putting their very lives on the line. And it wasn't easy. And it would have been real easy for them to go, I mean, hey, I mean, we're here with the, you know, with the master eunuch dude, and I mean, he's showing us all this good grub, and I mean, really, nobody else is going to see. I mean, after all, we'll just make a pact. We'll all stay right here in our little club. There's only four of us. We'll chow down on the king's food, and we just won't tell anybody. We call that justification of sin, amen? But if you really love God, in those moments when nobody else sees, you're going, what does God think? That's how we know the character of these young men. Because what they're saying is, I care what God thinks about this situation. All the time. Every day in every way. There would have been tremendous temptation to compromise. And there would have been nobody there to point a finger at them except they knew God saw it. The other side of this, imagine for a moment if you were in their place and you're a teenager. Think about it. You have just been invited to the White House. Vice President Biden comes in and he says, you know what, Uh, President Obama has told me that I'm supposed to give you absolutely anything you want. We have an entire kitchen down below, and that kitchen is at your disposal. Tell us what you want. Ribs, Kansas City style. And fries. I don't know. I don't know what you would have said. But the fact of the matter is, that's the situation they're in. The most powerful man on the planet Earth at the time has said, it's all yours. Have anything you want. This is what I eat. This is what I drink. These are my servants, and they're going to serve you. And you're 14 to 17 years old. What would you have done? What would you have done? Think about it from their position, because it actually gets even more amazing when you think about where they're at. Man, it's not like exactly God's been good to us. We were in Jerusalem. We're now in Babylon in captivity. You know, it's Jehovah guy. I don't know how powerful he is, but he didn't keep us out of here. Don't think that wouldn't have been a temptation? Another temptation, hey, we were taught from our youth to obey authority. This guy's telling us what to do. We were brought here. I mean, actually, he's a rightful king. He conquered Jerusalem. We're in his care. He's telling us to pig out. Let's go for it. Under normal circumstances, I would follow God's law. But this isn't a normal circumstance. I mean, after all, we could get killed if we say no. You see how easy it would have been for these guys to compromise and have been perfectly justified in their own heads to do so? And yet they don't. Or the biggie, hey, mom and dad will never know. We're like here behind closed doors in the king's palace. They'll never see it. 
They're not even, they can't even get in here, man. This is like our party house. We're the big one. Hey, we're only kids. I mean, what do you want from us? We're kids. You see, it makes this story all the more amazing. These teenagers knew what was right and good under God's law, and they knew its consequences. And they were willing to do exactly what God wanted them to do. That is awesome. It's the kind of kids I I pray that we're raising up in this church. Because the other side is true. James chapter 2, verse 4 tells us, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's sin. You see, they, they had really the opportunity to please themselves and man and flesh. Or please God. And pleasing man would have meant great reward. And pleasing God meant great difficulty. And we're going to see that as this book unfolds. This cost them. Family of God, if you're going to stand for God, it's going to cost you something. Maybe it'll cost you a friendship. might cost you a job. It could cost you a promotion, a raise. You may even have to suffer through some distancing with your own children. Maybe your family. If you stand for God, at some point in time, it's going to cost you something. It certainly cost your kids in school. And so the test unfolds, and I want to wrap this up and bring it to a close tonight. I want you to understand something. The word tests and tempts is basically the same word in the Greek. But there is a different meaning and a different spin that you need to assign to each. Satan tempts you. And he's trying to get you to sin. He he is going, here's the carrot. You are the donkey. Take a bite. Here it is. Check it out. It's right here. Doesn't it look good? Here's that big old fatty steak. It shirts the king's meat, but don't worry about that. That's temptation. Tests God allows in your life to prove your faith. He said, here's who I am. You know who I am. I've told you about me. And here is what Satan means for a temptation to you as a believer is a test where you say, God, increase my faith. Give me more of who you are. Let me pass this. And the classic passage, which we do not have time to read tonight, but you can look at it. It's James chapter 1. It's really the first 15 verses there. And it says there, as most of you know, my brethren, in verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Same word. Knowing that the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith, from God's perspective, the testing of your faith produces patience. And it goes on to tell what that does. That once it has its perfect work in you, it leaves you complete and lacking nothing. These young men were in a very bad situation where it would have been very easy to compromise, where there would have been justification for their actions, where they are going to be tempted like you can't imagine, but from God's perspective, it is a gigantic test of their faith. Will you stand for me or will you not? They are going to pass that test. Notice verse 12 in James chapter 1, blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, in other words, God goes, kitchink, nice job. Here's the temptation. Satan was trying to destroy you. I meant it as a test for you because I want you to grow in your faith, your relationship with me. You stamped, take out the passport, Ecuador. Been approved. He'll receive the crown of life. In other words, ultimately, these things were all building up that towards that crown that you're going to receive when you stand before the judgment seat, the bema seat of Christ, wherein you will be given rewards for those things done in this earth, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 13, very, very, very important verse. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. Be very careful here, because it's extremely specific. In other words, God's not going to give you something that is designed to make you fail. He's not interested in seeing if you can just simply survive. He wants you to thrive. But no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself, notice this, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Amen? There is nothing you will ever face on this earth as a believer that is a temptation that God brought into your life that you can't pass as a test. Nothing including drugs and alcohol and relationships and money problems and a goofy president and all the other stuff that we are faced with on a daily basis. Do you understand what is said there? Because it's really important. God doesn't tempt anyone. He allows temptation. And what Satan intends for evil, just exactly as Genesis chapter 50 says, The Lord intends for your good. It is an opportunity for you to see the powerful hand of God in deliverance. It is the opportunity for you to see growth. It is the opportunity for you to become better than you were before. That is what it is. But each one, verse 14, is tempted. Notice this. The temptation side of this is your flesh. It's my flesh. It is not the spirit It's not a lack on your part uh, of God not preparing you. It isn't that God didn't warn you enough. It isn't that you had a bad environment or a bad childhood. It isn't that you got up one day and you were completely overwhelmed and couldn't help yourself. Notice what it says. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Your flesh still alive in you, my flesh still alive in me, is the reason that we do not succeed. It is never a lack on God's part. God is more than sufficient. You see, the motives, the methods, we either imply with what we do that God is king or Nebuchadnezzar is king. That God is God or Nebuchadnezzar is God. And if it's temptation... Let God use it as a test, and he will prove himself faithful. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the power of your word. And Lord, what it speaks to us in our lives here on this earth. And Lord, help us as these young men did. Lord, help us to be as as Daniel. Lord, help us to stand fast in the face of adversity. Lord, we want to pray just for protection over our young people. Lord, in this church, in our homes, in this community, Lord, as we go to the graduations this week and, Lord, the commencement exercises where these young men, these young women have an opportunity to really shine for you or, Lord, begin to turn to the world. We pray that you would just hedge them in. Lord, that you would... Uh, Watch over them and guard them and guide them. Give them strength to withstand uh, the forces of darkness that will certainly come against them and try and dissuade them from walking with you. We thank you for the example of Daniel. We pray that many in this church would be as Daniel. We pray that whether they be male or female, Lord, they would be as Daniel. Lord, standing strong, courageous, unashamed. We love you. We praise you. We thank you. We ask all these things in the blessed name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, and our soon coming King. Amen. Get ready. This is a crazy book. Lots of fun. Amen? Be challenged.